0: Welcome to the August 2018 edition of the Rehab Cast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox. And in this episode, we're going to have a news roundup followed by a discussion with Dr. Doug Katz. He's former president of ACRM and he's one of the lead authors on the new guidelines on the care of persons with disorders of consciousness. These guidelines are co-published in the archives and in the journal Neurology, published by the American Academy of Neurology. It's a multi-year work product by a team of experts around the world. And as you'll hear, all of us involved in the care of persons with DOC are hopeful that the guidelines will help advance the science as well as access to care that already exists, but patients are too often denied. First up in the news, it's high trauma season. If your rehab hospital is anything like ours at Shepherd Center, you're packed to the gills with traumas of all sorts in the summer season. But I was astounded recently by the sheer number of diving injuries on our spinal cord injury service as I rounded one weekend this summer. I stopped in on at least five young people who'd been injured in this way. It's a never-ending battle to get the word out that no dive is a safe dive. Now, I'm lucky enough to have a pool in my backyard here in Atlanta. Among the first things we did after moving in was tearing out the diving board. One of the interesting things, if a bit morbid, about a career in rehabilitation medicine is seeing all the new and creative ways we humans come up with to injure ourselves. Now, here's the latest one to concern me.
1: Electric scooters rented via apps are flooding city streets. Let's say we want to get this one for you. So you just have to scan the QR code that is here. QR code right there. An American company called Lime has e-scooters in nearly 30 U.S. cities and just dropped hundreds on the streets here in Paris. And then you have to give a first push. First kind of... And then you're good to go. The scooters top out at 15 miles per hour. They cost a dollar to rent, 15 cents per minute to ride, and use the same lithium-ion batteries your phones and tablets do. We raised $135 million dollars. $135 million dollars live yeah. is raised uh, in, like a, in a year and a half, so it's pretty, pretty good. That's a lot of capital being injected into this exactly.
0: market. Are e-scooters the next new wave of traffic-related morbidity and mortality? If you're working in a big metro area where they're rolling out this summer, I bet you're starting to see some of these too. Now here in Atlanta, we recently spotted a bird scooter rider on a major highway called the Downtown Connector. Another rider got creamed in front of the hospital right next door to us. I wrote about a rider who suffered a severe TBI that I recently treated at my hospital for CNN.com in a piece headlined, Do Something About the Dangers of E-Scooters. Now, e-scooters are dropping into cities without any planning, any preparation, or education, and predictably accidents are happening as unhelmeted riders interact with pedestrians on the sidewalk or the much larger motor vehicles on the roads. I do think this new transportation technology has a role to play in congested cities, but introducing them without any planning is egregiously irresponsible on the part of the tech companies that are putting them out there. The lack of planning even extends to accident liability as medical insurers point to car insurers saying that they should pay when an insured motorist decides to rent an e-scooter, and those motor vehicle insurers are saying, hey, there's nothing about e-scooters and your car rental rider. When health and safety is on the line, it's crucial that one company's legitimate right to come up with a handy new product and money-making scheme doesn't infringe on your right to move freely In public spaces. Next up in the news roundup, from CNN, it's Escape from Mayo Clinic Neurorehabilitation. Now, I write for CNN Opinion, but that doesn't mean that I have a hand in anything else that CNN decides to do. It's a big operation, and I only have a window into a tiny sliver. Now, there's one reporting project published on August 17th that really surprised me. Perhaps dismayed is a better word. We're talking about this widely circulated story here on the rehab cast because it concerns Mayo's inpatient rehabilitation program.
2: Alyssa Gilderhus and her family say they experienced the seemingly unthinkable. In this email to police, Alyssa's mother says her 18-year-old daughter was medically kidnapped by the world-famous Mayo Clinic. Do you think they were trying to medically kidnap you?
1: Yes. I completely do, not a doubt in my mind.
2: This was Alyssa on Christmas Eve in 2016 with her family in Sherburn, Minnesota. On Christmas Day, a blood vessel burst inside her brain. She had emergency surgery at the Mayo Clinic. Doctors gave her a 2% chance of surviving. How did those neurosurgeons do?
1: Fantastic. Phenomenal.
2: They saved her life. After a month, she moved to the rehabilitation unit at Mayo with new doctors. When you had opinions or thoughts about Alyssa's care, Mm -hmm. did they listen to you? No.
3: I don't feel they did at all.
2: Did they seem annoyed with you? Yes.
3: Because we were parents, not the doctors, because they knew everything and
0: we didn't.
2: The tension eventually exploded and Mayo kicked Alyssa's mother out of the hospital after they say she interrupted a meeting.
0: Now you can read the two-part story on CNN under the headline Escape from the Mayo Clinic. Teen accuses world-famous hospital of medical kidnapping. It comes complete with video the family shot getting their 18-year-old daughter out of Mayo under a ruse, saying that she needed to go downstairs to see her grandmother, who was too feeble to come up to the floor. Once they reeled her out of the front of the hospital with Mayo's attendants behind, They got her into the family vehicle and sped away. Mayo then called police to report a patient abduction. The story is the result of necessarily one-sided reporting, with CNN having full access to the distressed family of a patient that disagreed with the recommendations of continued inpatient rehab from their Mayo Clinic rehab team. Now, despite CNN's decision to go forward with the reporting, Mayo decided it couldn't discuss the case in detail with CNN, even with a signed release from the patient, as in Mayo's ethical opinion, discussing those details wouldn't be in hers or her family's best interests. From a neurorehabilitation practitioner's perspective, the situation Mayo faced isn't all that unusual, even though how far it spiraled out of control, fortunately, is quite unusual. Mayo was treating an 18-year-old recovering from a brain aneurysm who lacked capacity. That's, of course, quite typical. But the patient's next of kin, the patient's biological mother, in charge of her medical decisions for her was someone that Mayo came to believe it could not entrust with her care either. Now, since this story is reported only from the mother's perspective, the reader isn't privy to the behaviors that Mayo witnessed that so worried them. Strangely, we're told in the story, also from the parents' perspective, that the hospital sought to obtain guardianship itself over the patient, which really isn't how it works. The crucial corroborating evidence that the patient shouldn't have been forcibly kept in the hospital against her mother's will is the fact that when the family took the daughter to an ER in a neighboring state, that ER thought that she was fine to go home. Now you and I know this doesn't grok with anything we know in medicine. The decision of an emergency room, that a person is medically stable enough to go home, has little, if anything, to do with the recommendations of specialists that neurorehabilitation is in the best interest of that patient for a better long-term outcome. Journalists also spoke with the captain of investigations of the Rochester, Minnesota Police Department, who said he did not investigate the patient abduction that Mayo reported as an abduction because, in his view, the patient and her parents both wanted her out of there. This decision is also irrelevant to the earlier decision-making inside the hospital because the courts had not made a decision yet on the patient's guardianship. A crime could only have occurred if someone else had custody over the patient, and that guardian didn't agree with her mother taking her home. But there was no such guardian. Once police determined that the quote-unquote abducted individual wasn't in imminent harm and was agreeable to the people providing her assistance, it's true. There's nothing for police to do. Now, Mayo's sophisticated crisis response includes its own reporter questioning Mayo's executive dean for practice.
1: Mayo Clinic continues its response to the story CNN published earlier this week titled Escape from Mayo Clinic. Mayo has called that story inaccurate, incomplete, and irresponsible. And joining me is Mayo's Executive Dean of Practice, Dr. Mike Harper, to discuss more of Mayo's response. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Harper. Why is Mayo Clinic taking such a strong stance? Because we want our patients, our employees, and the public to
3: know the truth. We think that the story had a lot of inaccuracies in it. And there was a lot of data that we shared with CNN that wasn't included or considered in their story. Uh, We initially did not want that uh, necessarily to become public because we wanted to protect the patient and we still want to protect the patient. But we feel that um, our side of the story really wasn't properly represented in the CNN report.
1: Did Mayo Clinic deny a request from the family to transfer the patient to a different facility?
3: No, we did not. Uh, We would have been happy to transfer the patient uh, if uh, the request came to transfer them to a facility that had the capabilities to take care of them, particularly a rehab center with all the necessary resources to make the patient able to move to a more independent living state.
1: And did Mayo Clinic staff remove the patient's mother from the hospital?
3: Yes, we did. Uh, We did that for very good reasons. We don't do that very often, um, and we only do it for certain reasons. And in this particular case, the reason was because the patient's mother was being disruptive and showing aggressive behavior both verbally and physically to our staff. So not only are we charged with protecting the safety of our patients, but we're charged with protecting the safety
1: of our staff. Dr. Harper, one point of discussion is this question of guardianship. Did Mayo Clinic seek to be appointed as a guardian or make decisions for that patient? No, we
3: were not seeking uh, guardianship on our behalf. We were seeking to have an outside responsible person chosen as a guardian who could make reasonable decisions on the patient's behalf because the patient really was impaired neurologically
0: and couldn't make those decisions uh, independently for themselves. So what can we all learn from this bizarre tale? It's certainly further reinforcement of just how bad things can get once trust is lost between families and care teams in the hospital, but this isn't news to anybody in medicine. Now, since this particular situation is all out in the public now, I would be interested to see Mayo comment on the one question I do have about the affair, whether there was another blood family member they could have worked with in lieu of the patient's mother and whether that person's demands Differed any from the mother's demands? The most important statement we heard in Mayo's response is their flat-out denial that Mayo denied a request to transfer the patient to another rehab program. Mayo says the family made no such request. And I find that fascinating. And here's a late-breaking update from the Mayo Clinic's Jennifer Plumbo, who got back to me just before we rolled out the show on the question I posed above about whether another blood relative was in play that Mayo could have or should have worked with. It turns out there was. Here's Mayo Clinic's verbatim response to my query. Hello, Dr. Vox, I apologize for the delay in responding. We've been inundated as you might imagine. The patient's biological father was here and making decisions for the patient when the mother was not present. The patient herself was an adult but was a vulnerable adult due to being hospitalized and having a significant neurological insult. She was nonverbal and had been evaluated by psychiatry just a couple of days prior and they deemed that she was not able to make complex decisions for herself. Nonetheless, while in our care the patient never requested a transfer, her biological father was here making decisions for her and he was not requesting a transfer the mother had been removed from the facility due to her escalating verbal and physical behavior toward our staff despite repeated warnings and a behavior plan that she agreed to and then broke and not acting in the patient's best interest. Mayo requested the court to appoint someone as guardian and decide who should make decisions for the patient. The mother had an attorney friend reach out to Mayo Clinic But she said she was the family's advocate and not their legal representative. She also was not representing the biological father who was on site making decisions at that time. The advocate requested a transfer sometime that week, but then the mother and stepfather removed the patient from the hospital the following day, thus not allowing sufficient time for Mayo to act on the letter anyway. The Against Medical Advice form was only found by Mayo Clinic after the patient had been removed from the hospital by her mother and stepfather. The biological father's criminal history was unknown to Mayo Clinic and no one from the family raised that as a concern at the time. He had the same parental rights as the mother we received an allegation of the mother's past abuse of the patient and reported that to authorities along with two other reports that we made to authorities regarding actions of the mother. In short, we were very concerned for this patient and her safety and her well-being and did everything possible to try to address the situation and get help from the courts. So there you have it, straight from the Mayo Clinic, further crucial details that were not adequately reflected in the story. In addition, Minnesota Public Radio has done some of its own investigations surrounding this story, and they report that independent of Mayo, NPR News found court documents that a Martin County judge ordered the mother's five younger children removed from her care in July 2018 after allegations were raised of neglect, physical, and emotional abuse. The mother tested positive for methamphetamines and amphetamines, when a county official visited her home in Sherburn to investigate child abuse reports. So those court records were available in the month prior to the publication of this news story and perhaps should have further put the brakes on the publication. Investigative journalism has a role to play in healthcare, but it is a qualitatively different sort of act to go digging around apparent controversies in medical care versus, say, a political scandal. One party in any given healthcare complaint faces both legal and ethical prohibitions against dissecting the matter in public. This situation does not mean that reporters can't ever report on such conflicts, but it raises the bar for how they corroborate those claims and how exactly they package the tale of woe to be featured. In this case, I do think CNN could have done better, and I told them so. JAMA published a study this month on the TBI suicide link, a matter well known in rehabilitation circles. The authors utilized Denmark's excellent registries to look at everyone 10 years and older living in Denmark in 1980, some 7.4 million people, and follow them through death, or leaving Denmark, or the year 2014, whichever came first. Among the 34,529 recorded suicides among that group of over 7 million people, 10.2 percent had prior medical contact for TBI, 7.8 percent with mild TBI, 0.5 percent had a skull fracture without a documented TBI, and 1.9 percent had a severe TBI history. TBI of any severity compared with those of no diagnosis of TBI was linked to an almost twofold increased risk of suicide. An accompanying editorialist asks, how exactly do TBIs increase suicide risk? What are the substrates and processes that causally link TBI, a highly heterogeneous condition to a singular catastrophic outcome? The answers are undoubtedly multifactorial and complex. How true, and work that continues. Over in the journal Stroke, we have more results from Medtronic's sister study, this time a secondary endpoint analysis showing that intrathecal baclofen therapy is lowering pain and improving quality of life for patients with post-stroke spasticity in direct comparison to oral medications. The study reports on post-stroke patients with ashworth scale 3 or higher spasticity in the lower extremities, comparing 31 patients who got ITB to 29 who received conventional treatment, including medications. The study is titled Effect of Intrathecal Baclofen on Pain and Quality of Life in Post-Stroke Spasticity, a Randomized Trial. Check it out. And now it's time for our featured interview. Joining me now on the rehab cast is Douglas Katz. Doug is a professor of neurology at Boston University, and he's the director of the Brain Injury Rehabilitation Program at Braintree Rehabilitation Hospital. You'll recognize his name from the cover of the textbook, Brain Injury Medicine. Dr. Katz recently served as president of the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. He's one of the lead authors on a slate of new guideline recommendations for the care of persons in a disorder of consciousness, coming from a group of esteemed researchers and clinicians convened by the American Academy of Neurology, ACRM, and the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. Dr. Katz, thank you for joining us today. Thank
4: you very much. I'm glad to be here.
0: This is uh, an effort of uh, a whole lot of folks um, uh, across the world, uh, really. Uh, You've worked on these uh, guidelines as it's uh, another multi-society type task force involving both the American Academy of Neurology uh, and the ACRM. Um, Can you tell us a bit about the genesis of it? Uh, about how long ago did the idea start? Um, How difficult was it to start up this process? Uh, Just give us a little bit of window about the beginning and what did you feel was was the need at that time?
4: Well, sure. And I'll also mention that the National Institute on Disability, uh, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research uh, was also a, um, a collaborator on this project along with the American Academy of Neurology and American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. So this uh, project um, is um, was something that was initiated by the American Academy of Neurology to update a practice guideline uh, that was put out some 23 years ago on what was called, what we do still call, the persistent vegetative state. And... Um, This was meant to be uh, an update of that. It's been quite some time since the previous guideline, and um, it was something that the American Academy of Neurology felt was needed to be done. And given the uh, kind of explosion of research in this area, particularly after another doc, another paper that was published uh, with uh, Dr. Giacino, Joseph Giacino, is the lead author. Um, in 2002, the case definition of the minimally conscious state. Since that time, there's been a lot of research that has helped clarify the diagnosis, prognosis, and uh, treatment of persons with disorders of consciousness. So the time was ripe. It's been 23 years since the last one. Uh, this effort was uh, really about a seven-year effort. Um, the, um, again, Dr. Giacino, Joseph Giacino, um, uh, is uh, the one of the leads on this effort. Um, And uh, he pulled together an expert panel uh, from around the world, as you mentioned, uh, to update these guidelines.
0: Now, there are a number of headlines in the guidelines. I I suppose one of uh, perhaps the most important is jettisoning altogether the term permanent uh, when it comes to vegetative state for both traumatic uh, and non-traumatic. Um, there had been debate for some time uh, with use of uh, persistent versus permanent, but that term hung out there uh, for some time for people, 12 months post traumatic or three months post uh, non-traumatic. Uh, in these guidelines, it's it's recommended uh, to get rid of that altogether and go to chronic. Tell us a little bit about the thinking of uh, chronic uh, vegetative state and why that why that is important.
4: When the The guideline was published 23 years ago uh, on the persistent vegetative state. They introduced the term permanent vegetative state uh, based on uh, the um, guidelines, prognosis uh, findings at that time. But even at that time, uh, as you mentioned, there was some controversy um, because there were uh, a few published exceptions uh, of people who had recovered consciousness after the uh, limit uh, for permanency at that time, one year for a traumatic brain injury, three months for non-traumatic brain injury. Uh, so, there was some controversy uh, whether the term permanent, which has the implications that there's no chance of recovery, uh, was really appropriate even at that time. Um, so, one of the findings of this new guideline is that there um, is evidence that uh, there can be Later recovery of persons um, with prolonged uh, unconsciousness that we refer to as a vegetative state or an unresponsive wakefulness state, or and certainly uh, patients who show signs of minimally conscious state, uh, which was newly defined even after the previous guideline, uh, that suggests that the term permanence uh, is inappropriate. So uh, we have. Um, Come to consensus on substituting the term chronic vegetative state with a designation of the duration of the impairment of consciousness, the disorder of consciousness, uh, along with uh, uh, the term chronic instead of permanent.
0: Now to get into some of the, uh, we're not going to go through each and every one of the recommendations but I'm going to hit some of the highlights and get your thinking uh, about those. Um, To start out with, the guidelines do recommend, there's a lot of what I would say are Level B and Level C uh, recommendations in these guidelines. Uh, Level C are kind of relatively endorsed things that uh, clinicians uh, may do. It appears valid, Uh, evidence is growing for them, Level B is something that you you should do. Uh, in level A, of course, you, re- you really must do. Uh, on the level uh, B, to start out with right at the beginning, uh, is that clinicians should refer patients uh, with DOC who have achieved medical stability enough to do so, Uh, should send those patients into settings that are staffed by multidisciplinary rehab teams with specialized training to optimize diagnostic evaluation, prognostication, and subsequent management including effective medical monitoring and rehabilitative care. I'm particularly pleased uh, to see uh, this recommendation since it's something uh, we do here at Shepherd Center, you do in your practice uh, at at Braintree, and I know that uh, uh, in order to implement guidelines as complicated as these, uh, that's a very that's a very complex task. It is interdisciplinary. There's not a lot of settings that match it, um, and uh, it's. I think it's Im- uh, important to to recognize that 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 expertise, unfortunately, does only reside uh, in certain places in our healthcare system. Hopefully, the guidelines will will spread this knowledge. Um, but uh, what what are your thoughts about about that initial recommendation?
4: Yeah, I think uh, it is important. Uh, the evidence and the uh, consensus of the experts uh, uh, supported it uh, fairly strongly, as you point out, a B-level recommendation. Uh, I think we all feel, um, as you know, in treating these patients that this is a, uh, this is a disorder that presents uh, a lot of uh, difficulties in diagnosis. Uh, it requires uh, knowledge of the disorder in the literature to be able to, um, to formulate and uh, explain a prognosis and some of the treatment strategies that are used uh, to uh, treat the, the neurologic condition that causes a disorder of uh, consciousness uh, to try and uh, perhaps uh, improve recovery as well as uh, treating Medical problems that are common and, and recognizing the medical problems that are common uh, with this disorder, as well as the specialized rehabilitative care to uh, keep a patient in uh, as best a uh, health uh, nutritional condition and avoiding complications as well as possible, are, are important and really require a certain amount of uh, training, uh, expertise, and uh, experience in order to do it uh, to do it properly and uh, to do it. Uh, to the uh, maximum benefit of uh, patients.
0: Now, now to bring in uh, another article briefly that uh, uh, that that uh, you did not uh, write, but Dr. Uh, Joseph Fens uh, did and James uh, Burnett about the ethical and uh, policy considerations in DOC. This kind of leads into that to a certain extent. They, uh, they did point out in their paper that at the same time as we're starting to recognize MCS, uh, new electrophysiological techniques are uh, becoming uh, uh, available uh, to us to detect covert consciousness. Um, at the same time as we're making these uh, advances and recognizing the importance of these programs and, and picking up early on medical com- uh, complications and so forth, that prohibit later emergence, patients are getting less and less access uh, to these programs uh, and, and facilities. Uh, it's uh, a, a really disheartening dichotomy there between the science and the actual uh, medical practice. Uh, this is something that, that everyone is in rehabilitation has dealt with, perhaps to some extent, plus or less, uh, on a variety of diagnoses. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but with uh, DOC uh, uh, in, in particular, uh, it's been rather dramatic. What are, your, what are your thoughts about that and hopes for what the guidelines may do in that arena?
4: Well, I think it's, uh, it's always been a challenge to try and um, get patients with a severe brain injury and prolonged disorders of consciousness to uh, facilities that have the experience and expertise uh, to diagnose uh, and treat them um, and uh, you know it's generally uh, a challenge throughout healthcare to um, try and uh, get the, the you know the best expertise and the best level of care for all sorts of patients I think the one of the roles of a guideline like this is to uh, present uh, the evidence uh, the scientific evidence in the literature as uh, well as the consensus of uh, the experts in such a guideline to try and um, move um, support uh, for treatment in uh, the direction that we think are most is most advantageous for patients and their families, uh, and uh, and hopefully to uh, allow the uh, support and any changes in policy that might be necessary to uh, facilitate uh, having patients. Uh, in the facilities that uh, can best care for them. So I think the role of uh, evidence-based guidelines in medicine in general is to both guide practitioners uh, and families to seek the proper medical care and hopefully to sort of guide uh, other others responsible in uh, supporting that care, payers, um, any kind of uh, government policy to to try and um, uh, facilitate the uh, best care and treatment for patients uh, with any disorder and in, and, in this case, patients with severe brain injury with prolonged disorders of consciousness.
0: Now, I don't think it'll be too much of, uh, of a surprise for most of the, the physiatrists uh, out there um, who uh, have, uh, you know, kind of exposure as part of our training to, to the brain injury rehabilitation uh, population. that. Uh, that neurobehavioral assessments are increasingly uh, the the standard um, and hopefully the the rest of the broader uh, medical community will will start to understand this problem of the diagnostic error rate even the world's kind of most most skilled uh, neurologist or physiatrist in the bedside exam is really handicapped uh, with that one snapshot to really declare is this patient vegetative or minimally conscious or sometimes even better that you really do need to uh, uh, to do kind of more of a structure Assessment and and many of us think a repeated assessment, too, which the guidelines uh, advances as level C. The idea of serial assessments. I know you do that in, in your program, and and we do uh, uh, in ours. Uh, the the guidelines endorse uh, attempting to uh, arouse your your patient and recognize that people may be uh, perform better at some times of day than another. Certainly, diagnosing other medical conditions that could be and treating those that could be clouding your assessment of the patient's consciousness, uh, all fairly straightforward stuff. Um, The guidelines also do start to look at uh, the variety of electrophysiological measures that are starting to become available and uh, and explored uh, uh, in a variety of centers, and we've seen a a real explosion of uh, of research uh, um, over the the past couple of decades in particular uh, in these. Uh, most all of them uh, are, are still level level C. Uh, something that uh, programs need to be uh, aware of, uh, perhaps explore in individual uh, cases and so forth. Um, uh, of the electrophysiological techniques, um, what uh, what do you feel are, are some of the uh, the most uh, the most promising?
4: Well, the uh, guideline looked at a number of electrophysiologic techniques, including um, electroencephalograms (EE) and doing uh, various types of analyses and quantitative analyses of uh, EEG recordings. Um, there are also um, papers that look at uh, evoked potentials and, um, you know, stimulating uh, either a Uh, somatosensory stimulation uh, or there are of course other types with uh, auditory visual stimulation but particularly somatosensory stimulation and looking at uh, responses there Um, there are uh, papers that have come out looking at uh, various other uh, perturbations and how it might affect uh, um, electrophysiologic uh, responses uh, um, and from presentation of stimuli to even even, uh, uh, trans-cranial magnetic stimulation and other sorts of stimulators. And then there's uh, actually looking at uh, EMG responses as a more sensitive way of uh, looking at a a motor response that may not be as uh, apparent to the visual eye um, that had also come out as uh, techniques that might – Enhance our detection of uh, responses.
0: Yeah, I think I think the EMG analysis, uh, surface EMG, is uh, particularly nice. It's something a little bit more uh, certainly uh, straightforward. A lot of physiatrists already have a, a background and that's it. Something that that, we're, that uh, we have explored here at, at Shepherd and are, uh, are attempting to kind of integrate more regularly uh, into our into our program. But uh, it's definitely an uh, an exciting area, and I think that the guidelines, uh, given how uh, how well they discuss them and uh, and lay out some of the different options, will probably increase the uptick of uh, clinicians who are treating these patients to uh, to start to uh, implement uh, one or more of these types of analyses into their programs.
4: Right, and I, and I think we should emphasize these electrophysiologic techniques, and then uh, we may speak also about the. Functional imaging techniques that have been a large part of the investigations are, uh, by this guideline, and you know, based on the evidence uh, that we have so far, they're they're meant to um, help um, support uh, diagnoses when uh, diagnosis is ambiguous based on the behavior, neurobehavioral exam alone. Um, there's there's no one test yet that. Will supersede the behavioral exam. Uh, these are meant as to help sort of supplement uh, diagnostic um, um, diagnostic uh, accuracy, and um, and they're not meant as something that's going to be better than the neurobehavioral exam, or or completely replace the neurobehavioral exam, and. And uh, vice versa, these these tests themselves, whether it's functional neuroimaging or neurophysiologic tests, in and of themselves uh, uh, alone, are not going to help make the diagnosis. But uh, together, they may improve um, accuracy of diagnosis uh, along with neurobehavioral testing.
0: Now on that imaging uh, spectrum that you mentioned, uh, I don't know if controversial is, is the term or not, but certainly one of uh, one thing that's going to get people's attention uh, is this recommendation for SPECT scanning, uh, one to two months uh, post injury to assist in prognostication regarding 12-month recovery of consciousness and degree of disability and recovery of patients and traumatic uh, vegetative state. That is endorsed at level B as something that clinicians should start to do. Uh, I'll tell you I've not done a, a spec scan on one of my patients yet. I have Because of these guidelines, I discussed it with nuclear medicine over there at uh, uh, our partner hospital, uh, Piedmont. Uh, I've gotten pricing on it uh, as well and run the protocol by them, and it's something that um, I'm I'm willing to consider. uh, it's, it's certainly, uh, the, the, the evidence is, is one that can be debated uh, as well. Um, so what are, your, what are your thoughts about that? I know the guideline publications, not everybody on the Guidelines Committee might necessarily agree with every point um, uh, that ultimately the group uh, uh, decides on, but, but what's your thinking about spec scanning this Level B recommendation in particular? Uh, should, we, should we start to uh, explore it and maybe start to, to order this test?
4: Uh, well, I don't have a definitive answer. I, ju- I just, I do want to clarify one thing though, just to make sure that we're sort of now we're switching the question from diagnosis to prognosis. So now, previously we were talking about using these tests to supplement neurobehavioral exams to help clarify diagnoses that may be ambiguous in terms of level of consciousness. The uh, recommendation um, regarding SPECT was uh, based on evidence that a normal spec scan at uh, one to two months um, um, along with some other evidence from other types of testing including uh, uh, P300 evoked potentials and the like uh, were possibly associated with uh, an increased likelihood of uh, recovery of consciousness or a more favorable uh, outcome and um you know, was felt uh, based on uh, this, you know, very rigorous process of use, using the evidence to come up with recommendations that um, the evidence in that particular case of a spec scan at one to two months uh, was strong enough to reach a level uh, B. Um, and, um, you know, again, I think with any kind of uh, uh, recommendations, uh, it's always up to the clinicians uh, along with discussion with patient and family to sort of make the final decisions. Um, and uh, although it was a, a strong recommendation in terms of ha- how it can help with prognosis, uh, it's, um, you know, not a, you know, it's it's still going to be up to the clinician to make their decision uh, based on um, the recommendation and their own interpretation of its usefulness and availability of the test. Uh, I, um, so, you know, I, I thought it was uh, in a, an important paper and an important recommendation. and It is something I will consider going forward in um, formulating prognosis in some of my patients. I, um, but uh, I haven't fully decided uh, uh, yet in general how I'm going to introduce it into my pra- practice. But uh, I, as with, uh, you know, looking at other recommendations, I, I will take a close look at it. Um, Everyone will have to make their own decision, and then further, you know, evidence as it comes out may uh, change how we uh, view this recommendation uh, uh, in the future. Uh,
0: yeah, so it's uh, it's fascinating to see that uh, you know guidelines I uh, influence influence everyone. Uh, it's the guidelines aren't necessarily just for. The totally uninitiated in the field too, but, but people who, who treat a, uh, a lot of this population, uh, like, like yourself, uh, on the guidelines, and, and me as well, can be influenced by them. I think that's probably a, a good process uh, uh, as well. It, it shows that uh, uh, that this really is a, a worthwhile activity up and down the uh, the full spectrum. Uh, but yes, prognostication, uh, you know, extremely important topic uh, uh, for uh, families and imp- really part of the part of the most difficult. Process of what we uh, deal with and uh, in DOC rehabilitation, um, the papers uh, uh, and the ethical paper uh, as well uh, are really point out. Certainly, the certainly we discussed the the misdiagnosis uh, issue at the, at the baseline. There's a big difference between vegetative minimally conscious and your chances uh, for for emerging. But uh, there's a lot of active withdrawal of care uh, early on perhaps in the acute setting uh, or maybe some other levels of care before people enter into DOC programs that in then that in all cases may not necessarily be appropriate and that's that's something that the guidelines may ultimately start to influence as well. It depends on the decision making of that family so long as they are properly educated but there's upwards of 70 percent of the withdrawal uh, of, of care uh, is uh, uh, really motivated. It, it seems like on um, perhaps a prognostication that uh, may be too severe,
4: right? And um, you know, a, a an inaccurate diagnosis and prognosis can lead to inappropriate care decisions and uh, poor health outcomes and withdrawal of care, as you pointed out. And uh, and a misdiagnosis can result. And you know, prognosis that may not be uh, um, appropriately conveyed or accurate uh, can result in premature inappropriate uh, treatment withdrawal and uh, failure to recommend beneficial rehabilitative treatments and uh, possibly a worse outcome. So one of the, I, as you point out, one of the strong recommendations of this uh, guideline is to uh, avoid uh, giving um, in, in inappropriately uh, poor or negative uh, prognosis, uh, particularly uh, early on, when some uh, decisions are made to uh, withdraw care that uh, may lead to a worse outcome or 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 death, and um, so it's um, it's Im- important um, that. I think, and one of the important roles of this guideline is to point out to those clinicians that are seeing patients early on not to give an overly negative prognosis. To look at uh, some of the outcomes that uh, are pointed out in this guideline. Uh, you know, for instance, um, some twenty percent of those with traumatic disorders of consciousness. Can regain functional independence even between two and five years uh, post-injury, and take that into account when conveying prognosis and helping uh, families to make decisions at uh, those critical early times. Um, It's uh, I think it it is definitely an important uh, recommendation here to avoid the what some people consider the kind of conventional wisdom of a, a a uniformly poor prognosis for patients who have very severe brain injuries, uh, who are anticipated to have prolonged disorder of of consciousness. Uh, The evidence shows that a uniformly poor prognosis is just not true, although uh, there is a range of uh, possible outcomes, certainly a a significant proportion will have outcomes that uh, families and patients themselves may find. Acceptable, favorable, and as I said, uh, the evidence shows that with traumatic prolonged disorders of consciousness, uh, uh, some one-fifth of those patients actually achieve functional independence.
0: Now, on the the treatment front, I don't think it's going to be breaking news for the vast majority of our of our listeners that the guidelines endorse the use of uh, of amantadine uh, at least between four and sixteen weeks uh, post uh, uh, injury. Uh, as uh, unfortunately, I guess at this time, the only medication with with enough uh, evidence uh, behind it uh, for uh, this guideline. Uh, there's an, and I, I imagine uh, most people are, are using that medication as tolerated uh, at this point, though it may further spread uh, the knowledge about uh, the utility of amantadine uh, a bit further. Um, looking at kind of treatment recommendations that, that perhaps are a little bit more tricky uh, to implement, uh, is the, the strong endorsement um, of uh, attempting to, to treat pain uh, in this in this population and how that interplays? with uh, the need to keep folks uh, aroused and engaged in therapy and how do we interpret uh, pain uh, in uh, VS and MCS uh, is a matter of some debate and there's some some scales uh, for that uh, but uh, there are ethical implications to, to this as well as there, as there seems to be in most of the, th- the things that we deal with surrounding uh, DOC. But, uh, but treating, treating pain on one level uh, in terms of just a scheduled background medication could certainly interfere with some of your assessments. So uh, there, there's a need to kind of integrate that into your program and kind of when you do kind of holidays on it and uh, doses and, uh, and so forth. Um, what, what are your thoughts about um, uh, whether the guidelines how, how it deals with, with pain. Do you, are you concerned about over-treatment, uh, of pain in in the population? Certainly I feel that, uh, in my own case, I've received a number of patients who have been on scheduled opioid pain medications that as we've gone down on, I've seen an improvement in in my patients. So, uh, you know, certainly there, there's some art to this.
4: Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's difficult. It's, uh, uh, it's trickery, tri- tricky because, uh, you know, in a patient with a disorder of consciousness, uh, we it's hard to um, sometimes interpret responses to pain. Uh, and, you know, we and I think the the main thrust of the guideline is um, that to recognize that accurate assessment of pain and suffering uh, in patients, in individuals with disorders of consciousness is uh, limited. Uh in the challenge to accurately diagnose pain. And there, and we can't just assume if you think a patient is completely unconscious uh, that they're not experiencing pain or suffering at some level because we can't always have full confidence in the diagnosis of complete unconsciousness period. There have been um, um, unconsciousness and the, the period of time that they're in a disorder of consciousness, They, they there may be um, awareness of pain that we cannot detect. I think that's sort of the main uh, focus is to not assume that there's no pain to tr- to uh, treat as if there is the potential to experience pain, but as with any treatment that has side effects that may affect responsiveness, um, affect um You know the well-being of the patient because of side effects. um, There has to be a balance between sort of the the benefit of treating the pain and uh, avoiding um, side effects that may be detrimental or may cloud uh, assessment. Um, So, but uh, I think the main point is don't assume if you think a patient may be unconscious or minimally conscious that they are not uh, necessarily. Uh, experiencing pain and suffering.
0: Well, Dr. Katz, these are very high yield papers. I would certainly uh, encourage any clinician who uh, ever comes into contact with this patient population to spend some time uh, with these papers. They're not not overly long and you can learn uh, uh, quite a lot. Um, And I I think that they're uh, going to be incredibly important uh, to the field. Now they've been uh, co-published in the the Green Journal uh, Neurology and the Archives at the same time. That's going to help get them out. Uh, a bit. Uh, What else are are the society is going to be doing to to make everyone uh, understand that these guidelines now exist and to refer to them?
4: Well, we will have a symposium um, presentation, actually a double symposium presentation uh, led by uh, Dr. Giacino and a number of us who participated in the guideline at the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine, ACRM, uh, meeting in Dallas. Uh, this year uh, at the end of September and into the early October, Um, so we will be uh, summarizing the findings of the guidelines and uh, hopefully having some discussion uh, uh, at those symposia, Uh, and I um, anticipate that uh, we will be presenting these at other uh, national and international meetings uh, coming up in the near future.
0: Excellent. Uh, I think it's going to, you know, be a good thing for the field, and is going to generate a lot, a lot of discussion. Hopefully, we'll continue to uh, to encourage more research for this uh, long underserved uh, patient population. Um, and I truly hope to start to see some policy implications uh, from uh, this paper. Uh, I, I think uh, it can be really used as a tool for advocacy uh, for the patient population.
4: Yes, I, I agree, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk about the guideline with you today and uh, and uh, answer questions uh, for uh, our audience.
0: Again, thank you so much, Dr. Katz, for joining us on the Rehab Cast. And listeners, you heard him mention the upcoming annual conference, which will feature a double symposium on these new DOC guidelines. There are still spaces available if you can make it to Dallas this year. Thanks for tuning in to the August 2018 edition of the Rehab Cast. Please join us again next month.
4: This
2: podcast is brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Dallas September 30th through October 2nd the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org.